On a hot day in May 1880, a tall, red-headed man with light blue eyes and a neatly trimmed mustache stepped off of a stagecoach in Phoenix on his first trip to Arizona. Making for the Phoenix Hotel at the corner of Washington and 3rd Streets, he requested a room, introducing himself as a representative of the San Francisco Examiner newspaper. When it became known that there was a fellow journalist in town, he was called on by none other than James H. McClintock, the historian we have quoted innumerable times now, who was also at present the editor of the Phoenix Herald. After this meeting, the visitor took the opportunity to meet and take a tour of the valley with a livery owner by the name of James Monahan. Monahan showed him to the confluence of the Gila and Salt Rivers, or where Avondale is today. The livery owner found his guest a lively conversationalist, possessed of seemingly relentless energy and an insatiable curiosity. He was also quite taken with the Salt River Valley, declaring the emerging agricultural settlement exactly what he was looking for. The visitor in question soon set off for Prescott, and it's possible that both McClintock and Monahan didn't give him a second thought at the time. However, both of them, upon learning of his reason for visiting Arizona, gave him the same piece of advice. Drop the idea before he became the most hated man in the entire territory. Because this energetic, inquisitive, and polished stranger stated that his business was taking possession of a large tract of land based on an old Spanish grant that had come into his possession through a convoluted series of events. It turned out that McClintock and Monahan were right. It was about to make this man, James Addison Rivas, one of the most hated and feared figures in the entire territory. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 135, The Baron of Arizona, Part 1, A Convoluted Claim. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the episode last week, tracing those two great natural disasters of the Sonoran Earthquake of 1887 and the Salt River Flood of 1891. And I apologize again for it being slightly shorter than the usual episode due to my attendance at the Arizona History Convention in Tempe last weekend. I will say, however, that the conference was great with several interesting panels. In fact, after attending one particular session, I feel I should revise some of my comments about the Wickenburg Massacre, which we covered very briefly in episode 64. Suffice it to say, there is some compelling evidence now that it might have actually been the Yavapai who attacked the stagecoach and killed the six passengers inside though it's possible they had been either spurred on or assisted by a white man who had hired a group of about 30 of them to build a road. There's also evidence to suggest that William Kruger's character has been much besmirched over the years and that he might not have been the sort of person who would have attacked his fellow passengers, which is an accusation that has been lobbed at him by several armchair historians. It just goes to show you that history is something that is constantly being reanalyzed and rewritten, making it an ever-changing and, in my opinion at least, ever-fascinating subject. But all that's literally in the past, as today we turn to something that I've long hinted at and even longer have planned to speak about. 
Because even in my ludicrously out-of-date original concept for this podcast, I plan to talk about Revis, the self-proclaimed Baron of Arizona. Now, I could have slipped the story of his lordship into the narrative a long time ago, as his uh, career in truly breathtaking schemes spanned decades. But I decided to wait until now, when it all unraveled, to take you through the entire plot, piece by piece. So, the first logical question is to ask ourselves, who was this James Revis who would become one of the legendary con men of his time? Revis was born in Missouri on May 10, 1843, the second of five children born to Fenton and Maria Revis. I have to add here that there's not a lot that's known about Revis's early years, and there is a lot more speculation, so please take out your salt licks before we keep going down this little rabbit hole. Author E.H. Cookridge says that Revis's father was of Welsh stock, while his mother was half Scottish and half Spanish. Cookridge also adds that his mother was intensely proud of her Spanish heritage and would romanticize the Iberian Peninsula in the story she would tell to young James, who ate it all up. He also goes on to say that Maria's marriage to Fenton Revis was not a happy one, as she had fallen in love young and ran away with Fenton, who turned out to be someone who went through life with very few prospects. Given his childhood in a poor house on the frontier, it's unclear where exactly James received his education. The opportunities had to be limited at the time, but from somewhere he developed a gift for florid language, both in oratory and on the written page, something that would serve him well in his infamous career to come. One of the defining events of Rivas' life happened when he was just 17, and that is the outbreak of the Civil War. Missouri, which came into the Union as a slave state in 1820, had not seceded, though it was recognized by the Confederacy and rogue elements of its state assembly had sent delegates to the Confederate Congress. So, indeed, Revis had the choice of either joining the Union or the Confederate Army, as both were actively recruiting in the state. He wound up joining the Confederacy. Cookridge says it was at the prompting of his mother who romanticized the plight of the southern states against the invading Yankees, but it turned out that army life was not really his cup of tea. Revis did not take too well to discipline, and his first battle was enough to prove that he didn't have the medal of a career soldier. This distaste for a situation, and perhaps a touch of homesickness, led him to discover something that would change the course of his entire life. Because, as it turned out, Revis was immensely talented when it came to forgery. As you might have guessed, you need a pass to leave your unit while you are on duty, which must be signed by a superior officer. Most sources will say that Revis discovered he had a knack for copying the signature of his superiors, which he could then apply to passes that would let him out of camp. However, Cookridge says that the passes were not like some fillable PDF that had to be signed. Instead, they had to be written in full by the officer and then signed, so what Revis was doing was much more involved than just copying a signature. But once he figured he could do it, he also began to write out requisition forms to get blankets, mules, and other provisions that he could turn around and sell to his fellow soldiers. At some point, he even let some of his buddies in on the secret of all the furloughs that he was taking and offered, for the right price of course, 
to make sure they got out of camp too. When some of his superiors started to get suspicious, he absconded to a new unit. But his heart was never really into soldiering. At one point, he was granted a furlough so he could go home and get married, but you won't be surprised to hear that there was no blushing bride waiting for him back home. And Rivas's conviction to the South was also quite transitory, because once he saw that the Confederate cause was doomed, he quickly defected to the winning side. However, this promising young con man kept playing the same tricks in the Union Army, but his forgeries were soon discovered and he basically absconded from his unit again, the only difference being that this time they wore blue and not gray. In 1865, Rivas went a step further and actually left the country, traveling to Brazil. Very little is known about this time in his life, or any exploits he may have had south of the equator, as he would never really talk about this time. Author Donald M. Powell says his time in South America learning Portuguese probably helped with Rivas's later fluent but faulty command of Spanish. This trip, however, was a short one, and the next year, 1866, we find him back in St. Louis, Missouri, where it was time for him to try and take up a vocation. He wasn't entirely successful in this endeavor at first, and drifted through a number of jobs, including being a clerk in a clothing store, a salesman for various goods, and even conducting a horse-drawn streetcar. He got that last job thanks to a glowing letter of recommendation about his time being a mule driver in the army, which was helpfully signed by a former CO and everything. None of these jobs really captured his interest, however, but they kept him afloat until he found something that was more suitable for him. The westward migration that occurred after the end of the Civil War meant that St. Louis, the gateway to the West, was booming. And Rivas noticed that real estate was the key to a comfortable life, and so he set himself up as an estate agent on the busy thoroughfare that was Olive Street. In this, he thrived. Rivas was meticulous and shrewd, coupled with a natural gift for ingratiating himself with people, which began to attract customers to him. Another notable occurrence is that at one point he, or one of his clients, had acquired a title to some land outside of St. Louis, but it was soon discovered that there were questions about the legitimacy of the document in question. Rivas investigated the matter, and after rummaging through some old documents, miraculously produced one that everyone else had somehow overlooked that made the title ironclad. This was probably his first foray into major forgery, but it apparently left him hungry for more, because he soon started to dream bigger. McClintock, in his recounting of the Peralta Grant, says that Rivas's trip to Arizona in 1880 was probably a reconnaissance mission to spy out the land in order to fully realize the scope of his plan. However, Phoenix was not his ultimate destination. He had to get to Prescott to follow up on one loose end that helped launch his ambitions. So now we have to talk about Dr. George Maurice Willing Jr. Willing had been born into an affluent Philadelphia family and had been trained as a physician. However, he had a particular weakness for gambling, drinking, and paying undue attention to his female patients. He also started discreetly selling his services to women seeking abortions, something that eventually required him to make a hasty move out west. Willing and his wife, Mary Ann, 
who was still loyal despite his infidelity and other faults, would eventually settle in Sacramento, where he again tried to ply his trade as a doctor. However, Willing was bitten by the prospecting bug and left Marianne to go seek his fortune. He never found it. But to make ends meet, he became the prototypical snake oil salesman, traveling through the West selling all sorts of tinctures, tonics, and remedies that were nothing more than placebos. Cookridge Riley points out that he may have made money off these schemes because his instructions for taking his cure-alls were immensely popular. He told people to mix them with either water or coffee, but preferably whiskey. And it's during these wanderings, where he would also do some honest medical work of setting bones and patching up bullet wounds, that he sets foot in Arizona. Now, please keep that in mind as I transition to 1871, when Willing stopped by Rivas's office on Olive Street and told him a long story. He had been referred to Rivas by another man as someone who can help settle land questions. And Willing had a land question all right. He claimed that in 1867, during his prospecting days, when he had formed the Willing Mining and Exploring Company, don't you know, he fell into conversation with a Mexican man around the campfire where all the prospectors gathered at night. This man told the good doctor that his family actually had an old land grant for a considerable amount of territory and documents to back it up, something that immediately interested Willing. So he rode with this Mexican to a spot along the Agua Fria River in Black Canyon where Willing met with the man's aging father, who was named Miguel Peralta. Now, according to Willing, or rather, according to Rivas's account of Willing's account, the old man produced the land claim documents, and despite his only passing knowledge of Spanish, Willing decided that it was interesting enough that he wanted to purchase the claim. The price was supposedly $20,000 in gold dust, mules, and other prospecting equipment, though Rivas, maybe to give his story more believability, found the idea of Willing making such a high payment a little dubious. The issue with this transaction, and the reason the good doctor had sought out Rivas, is that he didn't have the proper paperwork to document the transfer of the deed. Willing said that he had no paper on him at the time to write down the actual details, so he scoured the frontier camp until he found a sheet of greasy, pencil-marked camp paper, or basically wrapping paper, to document the occasion. As you might imagine, there was no judge or notary in a Black Canyon mining camp, so the document had to be signed in front of witnesses. Willing, again through Rivas, said that he tried to get Miguel Peralta to come up to Prescott with him to make everything nice and official, but the old Mexican refused to go. We do know that Willing did go to Prescott shortly after this was said to have occurred, because he had an interaction there with none other than James Monahan, the same livery owner that would show Rivas around the Salt River Valley in 1880. Monahan, who was living in Prescott in 1867, recalled that Willing came to town and had racked up a bill for livery services equaling 30 or 40 bucks. That doesn't sound like a lot to us. Heck, it's a trip for two to the movies if you share popcorn. But that was the equivalent of between roughly $650 and $850 at the time. According to Monahan, who would actually testify in court over this whole affair, Willing said that he had urgent business to get to in the East and asked if Monahan would trust that he would pay him after that business had been concluded. Monahan smartly turned down this proposition. 
The next day, Willing came back and tried a different tact. He claimed that he had bought a floating land grant recently for a considerable sum, and that for the price of his debt, plus a $250 loan, he would cut Monahan in for half of the profits. The doctor went on further to say that they could fix the boundaries wherever they wanted, and suggested that they put it around Prescott itself and make miners and others pay them for the property they were already on. At this, Monahan became indignant, stating that there was no way he would treat his neighbors and friends in such a manner, and that if Willing talked about this more, the good citizens of Prescott would gladly hang him from the nearest pine tree. And just for good measure, he told the scheming physician that now he really had to pay his bill before leaving town. It seems that Willing couldn't keep his mouth shut, though, as he tried to find others who would either loan him the money or wanted a piece of his grant. All this did, though, was get the word out that Willing was attempting to make people pay for their own land, and soon enough he had the flea Prescott under the threat of physical violence. So he sold his horses to pay his debt to Monahan and joined a government surveying party that was heading to Santa Fe. From there, Willing had a series of misfortunes, so it wasn't until 1871, when he walked into Revis's office, that he pursued his supposed claim further. Well, it's possible that a seed was planted in Revis's brain that first day when Willing walked into his office. He did not immediately jump on it. But Willing returned the next day, this time with a small, sly, elderly man known as William Gitt. Gitt was well known in the area, where he was often called either the old Spanish land title lawyer or Spanish land grant Gitt. Whichever he was actually called, it was not a sobriquet of respect. He had an infamous reputation for less-than-legitimate land deeds, and according to Cookridge, had recently reappeared in St. Louis after a 10-year forced absence. Together, the three men pored over the documents that Willing had brought with him, with Revis taking the opportunity to pepper Git with questions regarding Spanish land laws and how grants had been handled by the American government. Over the next few months, Revis did not pursue Willing's grant, though he was asked by the physician for several small loans from time to time. He also struck up quite the friendship with Git and even bought some land from the crooked lawyer, land whose deeds, according to Cookridge, were improved with a little bit of Revis's skill. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Revis also became something of a favorite in the Willing household, with Mrs. Willing who I have a lot of sympathy for, as her husband was not the Euxorious type, making sure he got a free meal or that his socks were darned. Finally, in 1873, Revis decided to act on Willing's grant. There was a nationwide panic that year that had resulted in bank runs and slumps in the real estate market, meaning Revis stood to lose a lot of money. What's more, it's possible that authorities were starting to become suspicious of some deals he had been involved in, meaning that the time was right to leave town anyway. Willing was eager for Revis to take up his case, but there was just one little complication. During one of his previous trips to California and again in desperate need of funds, the doctor had sold the mining rights to his grant to a San Francisco merchant named Florin Massel. So the plan was that Revis would head to California to sort things out with Massel, while Willing returned to Prescott to actually file his land claim. Willing left by train in the latter half of 1873, but Revis tarried in St. Louis at least until May 1874 when he married his wife, Ann Pope, 
though I wouldn't bother learning her name as he's going to just abandon her. Three weeks after the ceremony, he was on a ship to take him to Panama from whence he would sail to California. Anne would not see him again for more than six years, and then only briefly. She finally became fed up and divorced him in 1883. Before we dive further into this story, I want to stop and say that it's almost impossible now to know what kind of claim, if any, Willing actually had. The true particulars were so distorted by Rivas's coming fraud that sorting out fact from either Rivas's or Willing's fictions is just a matter of guesswork. McClintock says that Willing may have had some shadow of a right to a small tract of land along the lower Gila River, and Cookridge says that it was never established what value of anything the deed had that Willing claimed to have bought. He may have had something that originated in a Spanish land grant, but it's also possible that everything that Rivas would file for in coming years originated from his own pen. For what it's worth, even after his schemes fell apart, Rivas would claim that some of the papers he submitted could actually be traced back to Willing. But by now you know enough about him to guess why we are skeptical about that. It's also entirely likely that Miguel Peralta, the man who supposedly sold Willing the land grant, never existed at all, but was a convenient figure made up to give the story an origin. But whether any or all of it was true or not, Rivas was about to embark on the land scheme fraud of a lifetime. Well, I shouldn't say about to embark, because it would actually be six years before he made it to Arizona at all. The reason for this delay is the news that awaited him in San Francisco when he arrived. There was a letter waiting him from Willing saying that he had made it to Prescott, but that letter was dated several months earlier. And this was handed over shortly before a telegram from the Yavapai County Sheriff informing Rivas that Willing was dead. In fact, Willing was dead even before Rivas had left Missouri. The good doctor had reached Prescott on March 28, 1874 and had gone straight to the Yavapai County Courthouse, where at 4 p.m. he finally recorded his deed, nine and a half years after supposedly buying it from Miguel Peralta. The next morning, March 29th, Willing was found face down across the bed in the lodgings he had arranged. The Arizona Minor Newspaper, edited by the colorful Charles Beach, whom we briefly touched on in episode 91, wrote that the death was due to exposure and privation. The newspaper also added the epitaph that Willing, quote, had his faults, not the least of which was the habit of stretching the truth, but was, on the whole, a bold adventurer and intelligent man, end quote. Now, there were rumors at the time that Willing's sudden death was caused by poison or some other unnatural method, but that was just talk around town. Willing was known as a drinker and may have been addicted to morphine, so there's no reason to expect some external agent helping him to shuffle off the mortal coil. The good doctor's death in 1874 is the reason that I said earlier that we really rely on Rivas for Willing's account of getting his grant, which consequently throws the whole story into question. His death is also the reason that, for a time, it seems that Rivas might have given up on the idea of pursuing the land grant at all. However, Cookridge argues convincingly 
that Revis must have noticed the positive flood of land-grant applications that were happening in California ever since the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo had promised to honor all property records in the new U.S. territory following the end of the Mexican-American War. He also says that even if some of these applications were obvious frauds, a little money was all that was needed for land commissioners and courts to quote-unquote examine the Mexican documents and declare them valid. There was ample reason, Cookridge adds, to suspect that a similar case would exist in Arizona, and so Rivas proudly began to dream big dreams again. As I mentioned before, Rivas would be in California for nearly six years, first teaching school in Downey before heading back to San Francisco where he tried to break into journalism. And this is why I said that for a time he may have given up the idea of chasing the land grant before viewing the situation changed his mind. Rivas would write articles for this or that publication and even set up the short-lived Sacramento Weekly Advertiser newspaper. However, the major newspapers in San Francisco would not hire this total novice as a reporter, so the best he could do was secure a job as the advertising and subscription manager for the San Francisco Examiner. He managed quite a coup in this job, however, when he was able to get an advertising contract with Colin P. Huntington, the powerful head of the Southern Pacific Railroad. The Examiner had attacked Huntington in the past, after which the Southern Pacific had pulled all of its advertising. When Rivas went to meet with Huntington, it was considered a fool's errand, but he managed to walk away with the contract, even if the paper decided to editorialize against Huntington again. How? Well, the Southern Pacific was interested in getting its hooks into Arizona and beating its competitor, the Texas and Pacific Railroad. So Rivas offered to cut Huntington in on this prime slice of Arizona territory that he just so happened to have a claim for. He also offered to deny any rival railroads access to his grant. Now, Huntington's a smart man, so he's not sold on Rivas. Not yet, anyway. But he decided to take a gamble. Even if Rivas turned out to be a smooth, talking fraud, which he was, such a claim would cause legal headaches for the Texas and Pacific Railroad, which would give his Southern Pacific an opening. So, finally, after the course of several meetings, it was decided that Rivas would go to Arizona in the guise of a journalist and pursue his claim. However, he had failed to mention to Huntington or his colleagues that technically the claim now belonged to the now widow willing, but that was a wrinkle that would take care of itself later. And this brings us finally back around to where we opened the episode, with Rivas arriving in Phoenix in May 1880 and his meeting with McClintock and Monahan before heading north to Prescott. Once in Prescott, Rivas made the rounds, stopping even to see Beach as a fellow newspaperman. He didn't give any hint as to his real mission, always making sure to introduce himself as a journalist looking to describe the territory for his paper. However, he also began to make inquiries about old Doc Willing, going so far as to produce an authorization signed by the now-widowed Mrs. Willing, giving him the right to collect any papers or other effects the dead man might have had. He was able to find the deed filed by Willing with the county, but what he really needed was the supporting documents that the good doctor had supposedly bought from Miguel Peralta. Rivas tracked down the judge that presided over the coroner's jury in the matter of Willing's death. The judge was an old man by this point, and it took some prodding to jog his memory about this particular case. 
What he did remember, however, was that the boarding house keeper had given him a gunny sack filled with Willing's possessions for safekeeping, seeing as the man had not left an address for any next of kin. And he said that he would look in his attic for it and Revis could call upon him the following day, and if he found it, Revis could keep it. Sure enough, Revis came back the following day to find a large sack sitting on a table filled with some clothes, pills and bottles, and an old envelope containing documents. Revis was polite as possible and asked the judge to donate the clothes to the needy and that all he really needed was these papers to secure certain property for the widow, you know. He then left as soon as good taste allowed and rushed back to his hotel, where he spread all of Willing's documents out before him. Revis would later recount that his heart pounded with excitement as he sorted through the faded yellow pages. At long last, he was able to verify that the precious documents showing the chain of ownership to the massive land grant were all there. Soon enough, he was on a train back to San Francisco, carrying with him the envelope of land claim documents and his notebook full of his thoughts from his tour with Monahan of the prosperous Salt River Valley. It doesn't really matter what was actually in the papers left by Willing. Whatever wasn't there, Revis already knew that he could slip in using the same skills that have served him so well, both in the army and swapping real estate in St. Louis. It could be that it was here, on that train ride back to California, that he started formulating the whole convoluted story and scope that would come to define his scheme. As Cookridge poetically writes, quote, At long last, the curtain was going up on the tragic comedy of the Peralta Grant a drama that was to be enacted by a splendid performer and to keep his audience spellbound for almost 15 years. End quote. So join me next week as we embark on Act 1 of this drama, in which Peralta would make his first attempt to convince everyone that he was the documented owner of some 12 million acres, a land claim the size of Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island combined that he would dub the Barony of Arizona. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.